This month, we're going down to North Devon, to the Valley of Rocks, a place that I've been thinking about for some time. A few years ago, I walked from Clevedon down to Nether Stowey, from Coleridge Cottage to Coleridge Cottage, in the footsteps of Coleridge. And one day I thought I should walk out of Watchet, where the ancient mariner statue stands and where Coleridge wrote more of his works. I had read somewhere that he had walked into the Valley of the Rocks, so I thought this must be a pilgrimage I must make one day as well. So join me on a walk along the southwest coast path from Somerset into North Devon with the accompaniment of Amy Summers' intermezzo for piano and strings. I'm driving along the notorious A39, where one tractor can stifle any long-for westward passage towards Watchet, Minehead and the North Devon coast. It's August the 22nd, and tonight is a blue moon. One definition of a blue moon can be when two full moons fall within a calendar month. But in this instance, it will be a blue moon because it is the third of four full moons within an astronomical season. In this case, the period between the summer solstice and the autumn equinox. Simples. Meandering through the picturesque village of Porlock, childhood memories return of family holidays in Somerset, with mum talking non-stop about, worrying non-stop about, the one in five mountainous hairpin ascent out of Porlock, which for us as children was just another adventure, not truly realising the severity of the incline in a fully family-laden E-reg Vauxhall Cresta in the mid-1970s. So 50 years on, with 30 years of car technology packed into my 1.6-litre diesel Citroen Picasso, plus 30 years of driving experience under my belt, I had no worries. Even with the numerous warning signs flashing past for 20% incline, steep hill and coaches must take alternative route. No sweat, I thought. The first turn was mild, and I cruised up in third gear. The second, in second. What's all the fuss about? But at the third, a sharp left. The passenger window was filled with a grey vertical tarmac cliff, its height above the roof of the car. OK, no more mum jokes. Respect. I pulled in just outside of Porlock on a grassy spot, giving myself and the engine a deserved rest freshened by a cooling sea breeze, and laid the OS map on the bonnet to choose the best footpath to start me on my journey to Linton and my destination, the Valley of Rocks, that had been on my mind for a few years. The choice of footpath was varied and contestable, as some began on the main road, others down hidden lanes, some looking more direct, others deviating. Back in the car, my eyes jumped from the bends and undulations in the road to oncoming traffic, from the OS map on the passenger seat to the signage of green, camouflaged, overgrown roadside footpaths as I travelled cautiously at 30 miles an hour 
with impatient drivers behind wanting to get to the coast pronto. As I approached where I thought footpath option number one was, I checked the impatience of the rear-view mirror and overshot the road. I found a turning place and came back. I rumbled down the single track, descending into a muddle of stone-built houses, some detached, some terraced, where a well-used farmhouse stood in its ruinous glory with wind-blown roof tiles. The parking space was tight, scraping up against a stone wall that had returned to its natural state with coloured lichen and ivy. Manoeuvring the car into the cramped spot whilst blocking an ancient wrought iron gate tangled with the interlocking briar concerned me that I was restricting the access of farm traffic so I drove back to the main road. A few miles on, I spied another footpath right on the road and finding a grassy pull-in at the mouth of a small industrial unit squatting in a disused quarry, I parked the car, pulled on my boots, strapped up my rucksack and began the walk, which I estimated to be about ten miles and five hours tops. The quiet of the field in July's warmth, the view that poured down to the sea, the sheep-trimmed grass, dwarf wind-bent trees and gentle breeze stopped me for a moment as I looked down beneath my feet to see a large, white, full-moon mushroom peering from the grassy tufts. I gobbled up the ground over Yenworthy Common with boundless energy, invigorated by getting out, by being outside, falling down towards the sea along the southwest coast path. But as I walked along, there was something keeping me at arm's length from the beauty of nature I was witnessing all around. I reached to touch the callous bark of a tree and feel the sensation on my fingers, but I can't feel the connection inside. I sense a barrier between myself and what lies outside, a dislocation of senses, a feeling of being locked in my mind, introverted, introspective, a sense of being trapped through too many laptop days indoors without striding with the green. Perhaps the responsibility I've given myself to witness, reflect and write about these full moon encounters is somehow distancing myself, taking me further away from experiencing and being a part of them firsthand. So what is the cure and where do I find it? The curse of the storyteller telling the story, detached from the action. Was taking on such a mammoth walk with so much ground to cover a mistake? Perhaps I should have limited my experience to a shorter distance or a smaller area, giving myself time to let go of where I had come from and settle into the stillness of where I am before, hopefully, refinding myself. Or has the well run dry of refreshing, mind-rinsing moon words? Was the pleasure dome a mirage, a fallacy, just a vision in a dream? In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, 
ran through caverns, measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted, and all should cry, Beware, beware, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. Thinking of Coleridge's Kubla Khan, I'm reminded that I'm in the land of poets, including Wordsworth. And think of my friend Awet from Eritrea, who I recently met in person for the first time, after meeting online at a creative writing day in February. Awet is a lover of English literature, which he studied in his early years. Byron, Shelley, Blake and especially Wordsworth, who he speaks about with such admiration, eloquence, intimacy and gratitude. Awet recently facilitated two sessions at a primary school in Western Supermare, where he shared his personal story of leaving home, telling the epic chapter of his life when escaping the restrictions of his native Eritrea, not once, but twice, including the hardships and torturous encounters. The pupils and staff, suffice to say, were spellbound, lost for words before expressing their admiration for his resilience, courage and positivity. He told me, with one of his full-blown smiles, of how one of Wordsworth's poems had come to him when hearing the voice of a woman singing in the fields during his one daily permitted ten-minute break in the open air. He, along with others, were confined in an underground prison, enduring the suffocation, insufferable heat and darkness, along with the resident rats and snakes. solitary reaper. Behold her, single in the field, yon solitary highland lass, reaping and singing by herself, stop here or gently pass. Alone she cuts and binds a grain and sings a melancholy strain. Oh, listen, for the veil profound is overflowing with the sound. No nightingale did ever chaunt more welcome notes to weary bands of travellers in some shady haunt among Arabian sands. A voice so thrilling ne'er was heard in springtime from the cuckoo bird, breaking the silence of the seas among the farthest Hebrides. Will no one tell me what she sings? Perhaps the plaintive numbers flow for old, unhappy, far-off things, and battles long ago. Or is it some more humble lay, familiar matter of today, some natural sorrow, loss or pain that has been 
a maybe again. Or tear the theme the maiden sang as if her song could have no ending. I saw her singing at her work, and oh, the sickle bending, I listened, motionless and still. And as I mounted up the hill, the music in my heart I bore, long after it was heard no more. field, I amble along narrow pathways, verge with green, speckled with vibrant colours that pour abundantly in this blessed summer's plot. In these nurtured grounds of wild, coombed garden, cultivated and cared for by unseen, omnipotent green-fingered hands. I am descending into the trees, sinking into myself deeper into the mystery of liminal time, further from the tarmac-thorted land I left behind. Rowan berries, shining wisdom, brilliant orange-red. Sycamore keys shaking, rustling at the threshold. Plunging ferns, opening vortex hearts. Twisting ash, gently swaying between the inner and outer. Clinging, pink, bursting rhododendron. Rippling streams, unseen trickle. Green-armed beach, embraced by the limb of wild rose, climbing to inject love's sweet token into the fountain of knowledge. Moss-covered bough, sweeping over the coombs ledge. Creeping ivy, clenching with intoxication. A cornucopia of rose-flowered foxglove proudly standing. Birch bark, encrusted lichen. Golden yellow dandelion, rose bay willow herb, hawthorn berries crimson, sunshot, pink infused, glowing red, floribunda. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round. And there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. Ambling amongst the gardens, of this pleasured dome, the path meanders, footloose. The mind roams, wandering free with a steady underpinning beating drone of soul on soil and the weighty sway of the rucksack pendulum. Deep in the shaded forest, winding down to a lower track, I come across a high-piled stack of rocks with a thickly hewn stone cross standing on a plinth above the height of my head. The cooling forest is quiet, apart from my constant trudge as I climb steeply, my speed reducing to snail pace 
as my feet inch forward rather than up, the pack mule tiring, sipping short from an emptying water bottle. I take a break, look at the map, and realise how long a recalculated twelve miles is going to take. I continue on course, as there are no shortcuts apart from choosing the monotony of the main road, so I push ahead through County Gate, passing Sister's Fountain Spring without the chance of refilling my bottle, across Glenthorne Plantations, inland of Desolation Point, dropping down onto the muddy paw prints of Dogsworthy Coombe towards the sea for a proper rest and late lunch in the sun, barefooted. The beach is an open, abandoned nest of large white grey stones resembling the eggs of seabirds, complete with driftwood bench nest, boulder mooring, the glimpse of a tantalising distant cove, the whitewashing of countless waves on infinite churning stones, accompanied by a flask of tea and smoked salmon. I climb back into the shade of my greenwood march towards the Valley of Rocks, with a thought of a pint and supper at the ancient Mariner Inn in Lynmouth. Checking my phone, whose battery is now running low, I estimate a 6pm arrival. But I have underestimated the distance, terrain, and not as the crow flies pathways, and with every snatched look at the OS map, my journey feels static, or at best moving at the speed of a reticent slug. I finally come out into open country with a shining archway of welcoming red hawthorn berries, tumbling fern and waving bracken to my left and the wide open expanse of blue-green water to my right, an exhilarating sight. I meet with a fellow traveller, an experienced guide, who suggests I take a shorter, straighter line across Countisbury Common rather than the coastal route before rejoining the southwest path to drop down into Lynmouth. He tells me of the Grey Lady Rock that stands austere, watching, bewitching above the valley. I follow him across the treeless common that flushes with a welcome breeze before taking us past a large house, several of whose grey crumbling wind-blasted trees have fallen in recent storms. Back on the path alone, I climb to the summit, where deep swathes of blushing purple blooms blow their royal reception, heather sent, heaven sent. The downward slope, bordered by cascading green and the sparkle of sunlit waves, refreshes and reinvigorates as my boots bounce down the path of grey stones onto tarmac road passing the purring of engines and mowed lawns back into the hubbub of food and drink, terrace cafe and public bar for the two-legged kind. The ancient Mariner Inn catches me with its glittering eye, but I push on, feeling the pull of the rocks, now only a mile away, whose name appears on brown signs for the first time, but the shorter upward and onwards climb out of Lynmouth is punishing, so steep that steps have been dug, boarded and anchored. 
Above the east and westland rivers, I scale the ascending poetry walk path, regaling me with the written word, reflecting the struggles of corona, finding solace and freedom in nature, the highs of friendship and genuine human contact. On a hairpin, I see a collection of stone figures on the wall of a hotel, cherubs, gardeners, squirrels, imps, mermaids, angels, donkeys, yes, and gnomes, with petrified rod and line. A playfully pained voice calls from the garden bench, Move on, Walker, or you'll be turned to stone and be part of her collection. I chuckle and move on. Off the road of boarding houses and hotels, I click through a gate and back into the green, a steep drop right and grey rocks left, boundary markers and first sentinels of the valley. Curious limestone formations loom high to my left, and I remember the words on the common of the grey lady, a distinctively shaped stone whose stare can petrify. The path cuts an arched cleft through the rock, and I tread under the grey ceilinged portal to the valley, which sweeps away to my right into a large green quarried bowl with tiny white scampering figures, voices bouncing in echoes, the sound of willow cracking, cracking, cracking. As I walk down the sloping path, seven hours later from when I set off, I hear the sound of a haunting melody played on a pipe high to my left, and my eyes latch onto a woman in a long dress playing below the grey rocks. I look for a sleeping spot, behind the shelter at Poet's Corner with poems on laminate, copper and mosaic, or across from the cemetery in an out-of-sight spinney. Darkness is falling as I return to the place of poets, stowing my bag high in a tree. By the time I walk into the town, darkness has settled, and as I cross the road, I see an end terrace with glowing halo. I stop to see the crown of the blue moon rise majestically into view, hanging above Bellevue Avenue. Now, where's that pint? My first choice pub is doomed as I ask for a table. Sorry, the kitchen is closed. I spend the next 25 minutes skirting around town, looking through windows at diners, scanning menus in various wipe-clean fonts or more sophisticated card-on-bleur plat du jour. But there's not much choice for a non-mammal eater. I return to the main street outside the outsized facade of the Victorian Bay Valley of Rocks Hotel, whose high and mighty imposing portico stops me in my hungry tracks. But, guided by my belly, my feet follow. The reception area is huge, with giant wide-gauge swinging wooden doors with shining brass handles. I hike across the dining area, as broad and deep as a swimming pool, with a balcony of painted onlookers. I reach the bar. The food is finished. I settle with a sigh for John Smith's draught to drown my sorrows on a two-course of salted crisps and roasted nuts. 
The barman's cordiality makes me smile whenever he greets a new guest. Then I get a nod that a meal has materialised. Miracle! A modest price is swiped from plastic and the savoury snacks are surplus. We talk of walk and hotel history before the barman finds me a charger to fit my phone. The feast arrives, piled high with vegetarian treats. I catch up on TV news and local ads. Another plate arrives. Sweet treats, for me, for free. I chat with the night's entertainer, offering a drink, as an energy exudes from his every word. I drain the pint and listen to the classics he sings with strumming guitar and backing track. Restless female feet get up to dance as men too meek clutch onto their mooring pints. I say goodnight and walk back through monochrome streets striped with the shadow and light of blue moon bright. Behind the shelter of Poet's Corner the wind ruffles a tree in Moonshine Valley. Under the frame of stretching limbs I stare at Pleasure Dome planets pole star platitudes, the wall of rocks, a dense black line, the sky a shade lighter. In the shadow of my tree I hear the call of the moon owl as late-night cars drive down the valley road, rumbling over the cattle grid, punctuating my longed-for slumber. In the early hours I'm woken by an unwelcome car whose door opens and closes. I hear no footsteps, but feel the fear of a late night, unwanted, unwarranted visit. The car drives away, rumbling back to town, as I wait, holding my breath, searching for the sound of late night footfall. The waft of a cool breeze washes away any lingering fear, and silence imbues with empty peace. The moon is high, and early evening's green, bold valley is now pooled with radiant moonlight. Stillness suffuses under subdued stars as a dreaming night bird flitters. I meet a friend early next morning outside the Victorian Hotel, and we share news over coffee and cake by the funicular railway. Our friendship has been short but suddenly deepened by the unexpected loss of a close friend. The air is warm, the light bright, as tourists walk towards the cliffside rails with holiday joy, as we share our honesty and not knowing through pensive reflection and powerless feelings, our understandings and confusions through distressed signals, our incredulity and scepticism through frowned expression both searching for the answer we will both never find. After my friend returns me to my quarry parked car, a story begins to unfold, coloured by Coleridge. In Devonia did nature a grey, deep, bold crater decree, where once a holy glacier scraped the land down to a sunless sea. Towering rocked walls circled round, and o'er times passing, 
the basin became uncharted ground. Gardens grew beyond, with the red of rowan berries shining, leafy ferns unfurling, and wild dog rose blossoms climbing. But oh, within that fathomless chasm, with wind-bent tree and contorted greenery, shaped by the twisted warp of human ways, of conflict, deceit, greed, and malaise, a savage place, malformed with nature, was said to house a grisly creature, half bird, half woman, with eyes of stone whose vengeful talons shone in the blue light of moonlit nights. This seabird spectre, this wraith of woman, who'd lost her way, had now returned to reclaim her rightful name. And o'er the chasm on still-mooned nights, when thin-veiled clouds drifted breathing, soundless flight on silent wings would prowl above with fateful teeth unsheathing. One look would turn a man to stone from this endearing, ghastly, beautiful crone. Some would say that her deadening power had come from society's injurious curse that befalls women hour by hour, which now she reflected with unnerving gaze and unrelenting glower. One night, with the moon full glowing, a man stepped, full knowing, into the chasm, searching for an answer he may never fathom. Snatching on nettle, snagging on bramble, the white pupil of Luna's eye ever watching his despairing ramble. A seabird observing overhead vanished into vaporous cloud as his footing stumbled over discoloured moon-bleached ground and from the rocks resounding he heard a piping flute sounding, floating midway in the air. Shadows crawled across the moon-drenched loam cast by white-clad figures that appeared melting from stone calling playing in the ghostly light, pawns in her game, victims imprisoned to claw back her name. But the man that trod across the holy green was like no other, friend to all, sister, mother, father, brother. And as he saw her in the moonlight glowing, something in her began to beat like mighty thunder growing. Her trusting grew, and a deepening within her knew that this man was like no other, but holding him with her stare, implored him to come no further. Her eyes did not paralyse, for his mind was made, and his footsteps on course stayed, walking from the edge of green into the thickening cloud, blinded by honeydew thoughts of her flashing eyes and floating hair, guiding him towards curse or cure. And as the silvered moon mist descended on the hollowed chasm, the white figures froze, or set free. The rolling clouds swallowed the valley. A grey rock formed in the shape of a winged woman, and a frozen trail of the man's walking vanished over the emptiness of an open sea.
Well, thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sleeping with the Moon. I hope you've enjoyed it, and please share it with others. Thanks as ever go to Pommy Harmer for all her care and skill and expertise and patience in recording this, and thanks once more go to Amy Summers for her beautiful music. <laughs>